Welcome to Pints in Politics. in politics is many things. First of all, we are a weekly panel discussion program on Trent Radio, CFFF, in Peterborough, Ontario, 92.7 FM. Pints and Politics is also a podcast posted on pintsandpolitics.ptbopodcasters.ca. You can also listen or subscribe by searching for Pints and Politics on iTunes or on Stitcher. We explore all things political with a focus on life in Peterborough and Ontario. Since March, we've been gathering together online for these discussions. The discussion to which you're about to listen was recorded on Wednesday, September 23rd. So joining me tonight for this panel discussion are four members of our regular panel, you know them all, property manager and businesswoman Jenny Lancio, Curve Lake First Nations Councillor and Ontario NDP Indigenous Peoples Chair, Sean Conway, math teacher and writer, Tim Etherington, and Peterborough This Week journalist and former Mayor of Peterborough, Sylvia Sutherland. Welcome all and thanks for joining me. We started uh, with a question on the throne speech as it just was given today, the 23rd. And what you're going to hear is Sylvia Sutherland answering as to her take on what stood out for her. Uh, The opposition, of course, said, well, there's no details. Throne speeches don't have details. They're like an official plan. They give the large picture and the details come later. In this instance, I think the thing that will give most people concern is the costing of everything that's being uh, that's being uh, promised. And that mm-hmm. will come later this fall in a financial statement. But I think generally speaking, I think there's much that a lot of people from various sectors will find to like in the throne speech. Any other tips? Yeah, there were. I mean, these 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 things are always aspirational, right? So, you know, sell the right things. That's easy, the easy part to do. As Sylvia says, it'll be in the impl- implementation. And a criticism I've often had for the Trudeau government is that they they say the right thing, but it's in the delivery that's they're a little bit inconsistent. I, there was one big thing that was in the throne speech, and that was an, an announcement of a national childcare program, which has been announced several times before. We actually had one in 2006 until. Uh, Harper and Layton brought down Martin's government. So we're going to take a run at it again. If it actually happens, then that's the kind of thing that people maybe hope that Trudeau would actually do. And it's taken five years, but that would be a wonderful thing. One quick note that was mentioned about the deficit, though, and I, um, it was a very effective phrasing in the throne speech. Mm-hmm. He laid out that the deficit is going to be carried by one of two bodies, that the deficit will be, will be held by two different parties. Either it'll be held by individual Canadians or it'll be held by the government. Time was with, with such financial strain on individual Canadians that people have a choice. They, they go into deficit or they don't. So the government can hold it okay. or not. So it's really a little bit specious of the Conservatives to jump all over the deficit without ever addressing what does this actually mean for individual right. Canadians who don't work in oil and gas. Yeah, I think I think that's exactly right, Tim. You know, to jump all over the deficit, we're in an unprecedented time. And one of the first things that we've seen signaled not only from the left, but even within the Trudeau government itself, has been the need for government to carry the burden rather than the individual citizens of this country. You know, and this is actually 
some would argue in some of the more fringe economic circles, this is the place where modern monetary theory would come out into play, where the government has a responsibility to provide, you know, safety and services to citizens. The government is in a place to do that, and we can't burden the taxpayer anymore in footing that bill. The government of Canada can totally foot that bill. I think exactly right that the promise of some sort of task force into a national child care program, albeit no details, I think that's something that the NDP really wanted to see out of the throne speech and among among many other things. But I think that's going to be the crux of their support, as we've already known that the Bloc Québécois will not be supporting the throne speech and neither will the Conservative Party. So if there can be palpable direction taken and, and you know, even you know, mm-hmm. taking what Tim said about the Leighton and Harper years, remember it was Dion that backed out of childcare, and so they brought the government down. So beyond that, I think it was it was a throne speech. It was a Trudeau government throne speech, and we know what the Trudeau government talks about. And it's always nice to see the usher of the black rod. <laughs> Jen, <laughs> I think that, you know, one of the things that people were waiting with bated breath to see is if somebody was going to be calling an election. And I kind of think that in the the financial climate right now, I don't know that any party wants to call an election unless they're absolutely positively sure that they can be the ones that are going to to win it. I think that everybody was kind of dancing around each other. I will say that it was the most combative for lack of another adjective I've ever seen Mr. Singby. He was kind of holding Trudeau's feet to the fire a little bit more than like a little bit more assertive than I mean in his usual lovely manner, but certainly yep. I I was I kinda like to see that side of him. Okay. Well, can, I, can I just make one more point uh, on the throne uh, really quickly. <laughs> well really quickly. Right away, of course, Quebec, Quebec, uh, actually, Singh holds the card. The, the, the conservatives are not supporting it. So, uh, but it's, uh, there's this jurisdictional issue that comes up every time with Quebec. You know, they're, they're trampling uh, when it comes to health care. That's a provincial matter. I'll tell you, having been mayor of a city, that you don't care where the funding comes from as long as it comes. On that, we will, uh, on this program, of course, come back to the throne speech and what's going to happen moving forward in Canadian politics. However, the focus of the program is on the U.S. election, and we must start off with the passing of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. What's the impact, and what do we see happening? What's at play here? Well, the impact, the impact, there are several impacts. One is the almost certain movement of the uh, United States Supreme Court to the conservatives for, a, for at least a generation, probably, uh, unless, unless, in fact, the uh, Biden wins, the Senate goes Democratic, and uh, I hate using the phrase pack the court, but they, they, there's no constitutional limitation to the number of members in the Supreme Court for oh. years. But it, it earlier had been six, it had been ten at various times in American huh? history. Roosevelt attempted, because they weren't passing certain New Deal legislation, to increase the numbers in the Supreme Court. He got a lot of pushback. And the term then was pack the court. They'd be better now to use the term reform the court. Because if Biden wins, <laughs> well, they would. And if Biden wins and the Senate goes Democratic, which it has to do it, I think you'll see more members on the Supreme Court. Trump would like the focus from the election now on to be on the court and away from the virus. I right. think the Democrats would be very smart 
in a way not to fall completely into that trap. They should keep focusing and pressing, I think, on the issue regarding the virus. I always kind of say that I'm a self-professed failed feminist, but so it pains me to have to say this. If I was a woman in the U.S. right now, I would be packing my bags and taking my reproductive rights and heading north because that is the very first thing. RV Wade is going to be the very first thing that they're going to put on the chopping block to test the waters. And it like that is a 45 year old law. And it makes me like sickened to think that we're going to go back 45 years in time to revisit that because I really feel like Bader was the only thing holding that law together in the States. Yeah, I think there's a couple of things in play. Sylvia has definitely touched on, touched on one that I really wanted to talk about, and it's the expansion of the Supreme Court in the United States. It's, uh, it's not written in the Constitution, the number that should be there. There should be about 15. And Biden, if elected president, should stack it. And he should also stack the lower courts in order to ensure that, that nothing gets to the Supreme Court, which is also within the Constitution and within his powers as president to not only stack the lower courts, but stack the Supreme Court and, if the Democrats take the Senate, uh, abolish the filibuster and destroy the power of the Senate, if not replace it completely. Sure, go ahead, Tim. It's a funny dynamic because it's really not a vote-getter for Trump. He, he may think it, but it, but it isn't. Um, you know, uh, a choice is, is by far the majority opinion in the United States. Uh, the United States suffers from minority rule. That gets into the construction of the Electoral College and the way it works in and, and, and the Senate. But the, clearly, a clear majority in the United States supports reproductive rights. And he's really putting the squeeze on several senators like Joni Ertz in Iowa and Lindsey Graham in South Carolina, maybe even Steve Daines in Montana, all of whom now have to go on the record of you know, voting against reproductive rights, essentially, when they vote for the Supreme Court. But I don't think that's the fight Trump cares about. The fight he cares about is the election. And so any advantage he can play to the Supreme Court, Trump is not trying to win the election. And people have to understand that. He's just trying to get close enough that then he can fully mitigate his way to stay into power. He's not playing it like we think he is. He's not adding up the votes. He's playing for his advantage. And the court is just one more advantage he has seize power in the United States. You know, I think uh, to that point too, Tim, it's not it's not a vote getter for for Trump, but what it does do is it mobilizes the base. You know, there's not a lot of growth room for growth for the Trump campaign, and I don't think there has been for some time. But what it can do is mobilize his base to get out, even those maybe you know softer Republicans who are not sure, but they're they kind of want to see a conservative justice, and so they're going to go out. I think you're right. The point about seeing a conservative justice is one of the things that motivated Mitt Romney, a great fan of of Trump's, but he has uh, in the past, and he's he's very much a fan of of conservative justices. So you take Mitt Romney, but take a lot of other conservatives, falsely conservatives out, out there, who may not be huge fans of Trump, but are huge fans of a conservative court. And as right. I said earlier, the other thing it does is detract, you know, attention uh, in some quarters from, from the virus, his, his monumental fa- failure there. And, uh, and also, you know, it exposes the absolute hypocrisy of some of those, uh, of McConnell and, uh, and of Lindsey Graham. You know, the, you wonder how much the public really can stomach of these spineless, hip- hypocritical representatives of Motivating, motivating the base is, I, 
I, I think it is true, yes, there is a motivation, no doubt about it, whenever that fight comes up. But that card's actually been played. That was the deal that Trump made with Evan Giacles in, the, in 2016 to get elected in the first place. I think that base is rather motivated. Sure, they may be a little extra motivated now. It didn't work in 2018, uh, the, out, the so-called outrage over Kavanaugh. Um, they, they lost the House. What it may very well do is motivate the Democratic base or people who really don't like Biden very much, who think he's far yeah. too much of a centrist, who are like, okay, well, this is it. This is the fight we have to come out. I, I think it's at least a wash. I'd actually think it's going to motivate the Democrats. The okay, now, Tim, about Trump not, Trump not running to win, but just running to get close enough to challenge and harass and eventually get in through uh, sneaky means. Does this mean that, uh, and this affects our agenda tonight, are we wasting our time and going through a long ex- uh, exploration of what the Electoral College is all about? Because in the end, will it matter? Because if he loses significantly enough, it doesn't matter. But if it's at all tight and he's already got it lined up and Florida, uh, the attorney general there is taking Mike Bloomberg to court for his efforts to try to try to pay off fines. They're going to legislate and litigate everything they possibly can to try to fuzz up the results and, and not certify. them. They're also courting faithless electors right now in various places. But. If they lose by enough, it doesn't matter. Um, if it's at all close, then he will stay in power. Yeah, I think there's a couple of options there, Bill. Uh, you know, eventually it could end up in the House. It could end up in the Senate. It could end up with the Supreme Court making the decision. And, and guess it what? doesn't matter what happens in the election, which is, I, th- I think we saw that in a TV show in the last couple of years. Where, <laughs> yeah, the playbook is there. Okay. If, if, in fact, if Biden wins by 5 million votes, and he has to win by that, then it probably will be clear sailing. Anything less than that, certainly the Electoral College really does come into play. I mean, we can't ignore the Electoral College. 48 of the 50 states have a winner-take-all. Two states, Nebraska and Maine, don't. And Madison, back in 1828, Madison was so upset with the, with the uh, winner-take-all approach to the Electoral College, which was put in place originally in order to give the smaller, smaller southern states primarily some equality when it came to, uh, to the presidency, they thought. Madison was so upset about the winner-take-all. If you win, if you win uh, for example, if, if uh, Trump wins Florida, he gets all of Florida's Electoral College votes. And that Madison wanted a constitutional amendment opposing that. It never happened. But to think that you, the Electoral College isn't important. The Electoral College is terrible, but it's important. So we're into the Electoral College. What else do non-Americans watching have to understand about this body? So if, if I can tell you that if we're talking about just gaming out in a regular election how it would work is Trump won by 36. He can afford to lose 36 electoral college votes. And if you lose, say if he loses 36 electoral college votes, so that's famously Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania. However, if he loses uh, Pennsylvania and, st- and uh, sorry, he wins Pennsylvania but loses Arizona, it will come down to those single congressional uh, seats in Maine and Nebraska, actually, uh, as to whether Biden wins by one vote. So if you're watching it on election night, here's the scorecard for you. 
Florida counts its, its absentee votes vary uh, before the election. So, and they all come in usually in one big chunk. So Florida will be decided pretty early unless it comes down to a few thousand votes. If Trump loses Florida, he's done. If he loses North Carolina, he's done. He's behind in those polls right now. But the urban votes in North Carolina come in late. They, the, the, the rural votes come in first. So North Carolina may look like a winner for Trump and not be a winner. Unfortunately, Pennsylvania and Michigan, uh, Michigan will go Biden unless there's a huge upset take a long time to count their votes. So really, if you're hoping for a peaceful transition for power, here's the scary scenario. You're you're pulling for Biden winning Florida. <laughs> well, you and know, and you knew four years ago, because Florida comes in early. And I, yeah. I was watching it with a friend and Florida, and we were assuming Hillary would win. And yeah. Florida came in and I remember saying to her, Hillary's just lost. You know, it was uh, Florida came in. But again, just to be clear to the people who aren't wonks like you and me, Sylvia. Uh, <laughs> there are people who Trump, Trump can win Florida, but he still has to win North Carolina yeah. and Pennsylvania and either Wisconsin or Arizona or Maine's second congressional district. <laughs> I like so he, just, Trump is by far the underdog. The only reason we're worried about Trump winning is because he's going to cheat like hell. If this were a normal election, we'd be calling it now. Right. Well, I think it could very well be the undoing of American democracy by the time it's over. Anything else on the Electoral College that people should know? So, no, all I wanted to say is I think, like I said last week, that is all like way too much mathing for me. And I do not think that it is dramatic enough for Trump. I do not, if, if that's the way he's going to go down, and raising a stink, I don't think that's how he's going to do it. I think that's giving him way too much strategic credit. He's going to, like, barricade himself in the panic room underneath the White House and, like, wait for people to come in and carry him out. Like, he is a reality TV star before anything else. And all of that strategic planning, it's like we're giving him way too much credit. No, okay. okay. Now, what about message management. What are the key messages from each party? And is any of it sticking? The message is that the message from the Democrats is that Joe, you know, you can you can identify with Joe. He's empathetic. He's a decent man. He'll bring us back to some degree. Of, it's not Trump. It's more than that. But the simple message is he's not Trump. Okay. Really yeah. But he's a pathetic human being. You know, uh, uh, Joe Biden just the other day did a town hall that I thought was super effective in yeah. Stanton. And this is the piece I've been waiting for, and a lot of people that are on the left of things have been waiting for, where he attacked. He said, you know, I'm a Scranton guy. He doesn't have, he's, does, he's not an Ivy Leaguer. He's, he's a regular dude, 40, 50 years ago, mind you. But, you know, Really coming out and saying, you know, this election is about Scranton versus Park Avenue, which is Joe Biden versus Donald Trump, silver spoon, silver spoon in his mouth, baby Donald Trump. And 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 that's the messaging that I want to hear from Joe Biden, which is class, which is class, um, which is which signals his knowledge of economic inequality, you know, bread and butter, kitchen table issues, which I think are what are going to bring more undecideds and the left into the Biden camp alongside an election now based around 
in some cases, not only the handling of the coronavirus, but also with choosing the next Supreme Court justice for the United States. Uh, those are the things that are going to activate people who will knock doors for Biden. Um, you know, as of, I think, just four days ago, Joe Biden had not opened a single campaign in office in Florida. That's a problem for people like me who look at things like, what's your ground game? I understand there's a pandemic going on, but there's got to be at least a place where people can pick up pamphlets. Yeah, I think, I think the Biden campaign has actually been a lot better than I think they get credit. I just don't think they, you know, they, they have trouble surfacing above it, but they, they seem to respond to stuff very well. But I agree with you, Sean. That was good to hear. Remember, Biden was added to the Obama ticket in part because of his appeal to Midwest blue-collar voters, which was no weakness with Obama. He lost all those uh, uh, primaries to Hillary Clinton back in uh, 2008. Just in terms of messaging, it came up to the Supreme Court. Um, The Biden campaign's done something very smart, is they're going to litigate the Supreme Court issue in the political sphere as an issue of health care. So they're going to issue it in, in terms of because... They're basically saying we need to protect your health care. It's been a winner for a couple cycles now for the Democrats. And circling back for a second on reproductive rights, I read a really interesting article recently this week saying there were a lot of working class voters who didn't like Clinton whatsoever, uh, particularly women. Blue collar women didn't like Clinton, like Trump. Let's be honest that, you know, the working class grievance has always been a convenient stand in for unexamined racism as well but that a lot of those people are pro-choice and that if you're going to shake them free from, from Trump in any significant number, it's threatening Roe versus Wade, which is why I go back and say, I don't think this is a winner for Trump. I don't think McConnell thinks it's a winner. He just wants his legacy to be a permanent conservative majority on the court. Jen. I think the Biden campaign has done a good job making him that blue-collar, likable guy. He's had just enough, enough tragedy in his life that he's relatable. He had the bromance when he was in office with Obama, but we all knew that when he sat for eight years as vice president. Like, he's already gone into this election with people knowing he is. And I think there's some time being wasted trying to reiterate that to people. Everybody knows he's the blue-collar guy. Well, I think, too, it's, it's, it's important to remember that, that the Barack Obama administration really looked down on Joe Biden and Joe Biden wasn't as visible as people, I think, think, particularly in the in the span of those eight years during the Obama presidency. You know, hit and miss. But but really, those those guys, those Ivy Leaguers always look down on Joe Biden. They look down on him in the Senate. Uh, they look down on him as VP. He was put in there as a placeholder to like court working class voters. And and really, he seems to only now be starting to make those those moves because that's what that's what I've been talking about for months now is that's a great place to come from because not only does it take those Trump voters who just didn't like Hillary Clinton, but it also activates the base of the Democratic Party, which are not centrists. I don't believe they are. I believe it's establishment power that's been centralized within the party. And I think that the non-voters and the unaffiliated that's really the future of the Democratic Party. And that's what they want to hear to get involved. Or they're going to find a third party. Yes, Sylvia. I I would take issue with Sean. I don't, you know, Joe Biden was given more responsibility than almost any other vice president in modern history by Obama. 
And he had more influence on Obama, one gathers, than almost any other vice president in recent history has had upon the president. And I don't think people necessarily look down on Joe Biden, actually. But, you can immediately uh, refute that with Dick Cheney, who ran the country. Can I, to Jenny's point, it's not as if they're they're putting on some act with Joe Biden, uh, with Joe Biden, no, with Joe Biden. That's a brilliant. Uh, with Joe Biden, I mean, he appears as he is. He's no. not putting wasting any time being empathetic. It's just no. the way. I think it's just the whole playing the whole like I'm the blue collar relatable guy. We all get that. So let's. Oh, do we like, all get he, that. He needs but maybe to some guy in Pennsylvania some, doesn't necessarily. But he needs to make up some grounds here. Like, tell me what else you can do. Well, he is. In He's fact, like he, is. he needs to get going hard on some policy or something because. Well, have you been watching nice the town halls? Have you been watching? He has been doing this. Now I I agree. I think more energy in it. But Biden has had what he's, you know, he's been on a fair amount. If I may, let's move from messaging to, and the next topic we need a three-hour program on, the topic is dirty tricks. In other words, uh, social media bots, gerrymandering, fake news stories, voter suppression, the suppression of mail ballots, the crippling of the U.S. Postal Service. I mean, of that list I just went through, what's the most significant? And are any of these really killers? Well, it's by design. It's by design. The entire system in America, voter suppression is legislated. And it's legislated by, by people who have a criminal record or who are in prison being unable to vote, which is a, a crime. That's, that's you know, they're, dis, they're destroying human rights for, for millions upon millions of Americans. Uh, who have a criminal record for X, Y, and Z, their entire justice system, not unlike Canada, is geared towards imprisoning uh, black, brown, indigenous people of color, and they've taken away their voting rights in a lot of swing states. You know, even you saw that that that, that bit with uh, Bloomberg trying to, you know, expunge some records or pay some fines off. They're going to they're gonna find a way to shut that down because the Senate controls everything right now. Does anyone know the percentage of Americans... Who have been incarcerated? I know amongst uh, African American Americans, it's like currently. Yeah, no, no, who have been people who are alive who could vote who have been incarcerated. How many is that? Like, what proportion of the population? Like, I was probably warned us you were going to give us that question. We couldn't lift them, look it up. I, I would probably <laughs> say it's about Canada. Wow. But you know, I think I think thirty million. Thirty million. Probably, wow. and the the rules vary from state to state. Florida, yeah. Florida, Florida, the reason it's happening in Florida is they actually put it on the ballot in uh, in 2018 as a plebiscite, and Floridians voted to allow ex felons to vote. So Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, who probably won by cheating, uh, institute put in a new law saying they had to pay their fines. So yes, Mike Bloomberg and also LeBron James. And uh, John Legend and others have raised, I think, about $16 million now to pay off these fines. So now they're being sued by the Florida Attorney General as of yesterday that that's, it's basically a vote-buying thing. They're not going to win that, and there's a lot of reasons for that we don't have time to get into. But hopefully they can stall that effort. That's, that's the whole point. What's the dirty trick that Donald Trump's going to use? Bill Barr. Oh, the, Justice yes. Department, the Justice Department is now being organized to ensure that Donald Trump wins the election. 
That is why I keep warning. It's there's a lot that we are about to witness fascism in America if Trump wins, because it will be because he uses the apparatus of the federal government to overturn the will of the people and win the election. You said if Trump wins, you meant you meant to say if Biden wins. If no, yeah. I'm, I'm saying I, I'm, if if Trump wins, then we are entering a, a oh. we are entering an age of fascist America, and Bill Barr will use okay. every tool at his disposal in the Justice Department to make it happen. This is not going to be a fair fight. According to statistics, according to these numbers, 6.1 million people in the U.S. can't vote due to a felony conviction. So that's one in every 40 U.S. adults that can't vote. 2.2 million of them are African-American. What about the campaign against the U.S. Postal Service? Well, that, that, that I think is... Uh, could turn out to be a major factor. I think it's over, though. Yeah. I think they've oh, moved really? on. I think okay. there's there's probably some things still happening that we should keep an eye on, but the entire Trump apparatus is now going to move towards dealing with the Supreme Court. Well, I, I guess I may have overstated, or I may have been too specific when it came to the Postal Service itself, but the whole one of Trump's Trump things, <laughs> You will is going to be the whole issue of mail-in ballots, yeah. and uh, and whether you know in the in the postal service have they replaced those machines? No, the, they're, the they're not going to. They're not no. going to. The DeJoy has stopped eliminating machines, yeah. so he's put a pause on it, but he's not reinstating the right. machines. Right. So yeah, the damage has been done. It's been halted, but the damage has already been done. That job's been accomplished. But I think I think Tim hit the nail on the head when he when he said two words, Bill Barr, not not just certainly after the election, and and now no Barr Barr is uh, Barr is a menace. All right. And on that note, uh, so thank you so much, Jenny, Tim, Sylvia, and Sean for joining in this discussion. We're going to come back to all these topics both with an, another set of panelists tomorrow. Some of the same people, a few different people. And then, of course, next week we'll also be on the new U.S. election. So you've been listening to Pints and Politics, a weekly discussion program about all things political, coming to you every Thursday night, 8 p.m., through the facilities of Trent Radio, 92.7 FM, CFFF in Peterborough, Ontario. And this is our 30th program of 2020. So until next week, this is Bill Templeman. 